I'll be reading from 1 Corinthians 4, 1 to 5. This is how one should regard us, as servants of Christ and stewards of the mysteries of God. Moreover, it is required of stewards that they be faithful. But with me, it is a very small thing that I should be judged by you or by any human court. In fact, I do not even judge myself, for I am not aware of anything against myself, but I am not thereby acquitted. It is the Lord who judges me. Therefore, do not pronounce judgment before the time before the Lord comes, who will bring to light the things now hidden in darkness and will disclose the purposes of the heart. Then each one will receive his commendation from God. Thank you, Evan, for reading. You know, there's some conversations you really wish you could have in person. You find a quiet office, or even better yet, you find a living room or a dining room table, and you just have uh, a serious conversation. Maybe something's urgent. Maybe something's pressing. Maybe emotions run high. There's differences of opinion. There are strong feelings, strong beliefs. And you know, you just need to have a conversation about it. You don't need misunderstandings. You know, when the Bible was written, there was nothing that could really... You couldn't have an immediate conversation over distance. This is long, you know, long before the days of email or FaceTime or Skype. So you would, if you wanted to communicate, travel was hard as well, so you would write letters and send them through couriers. We have some of those letters that were written. Some of the first followers of Jesus wrote letters to churches, giving them instruction. One of those is First Corinthians that Evan read a moment ago. We can listen in on what he had to say, what Paul was saying to this group of believers. He's wrapping up some things he's been discussing really for the first four chapters. It's kind of a one unit in First Corinthians. Our church, so Ogletown, has its own set of opportunities and struggles, and some of those don't completely parallel what the church at Corinth had. And yet, I think there's enough overlap, and I think you'll see that this morning. I think there's enough overlap to say there are things that we can learn, things that we can listen to and apply to our own lives, things that could actually have profound meaning to us. I think as Paul is wrapping up this first section of 1 Corinthians, he highlights a few things. He gives some reminders, and I think we need to hear those reminders. I don't know that Paul communicates a lot of new information in 1 Corinthians 4. But it certainly is important information. God's word this morning, this is what it can do. It can drive certain new behaviors. It can change our thinking. It can reform our heart. It can give us a spiritual reset when we hear God's word. So I want us to dig in. I hope you have your Bibles open. 1 Corinthians chapter 4. We'll begin reading in verse 1. Paul kind of starts off this wrap-up with basically saying, let me tell you where we as apostles rate, where we as some of the followers of Jesus, let me tell you where we rate. He says in verse 1, this is how one should regard us. Notice what he says. How should we regard you, Paul? As servants of Christ and as stewards of the mysteries of God. Moreover, it is required in stewards that they be found faithful. So here's a reminder as Paul's wrapping up this argument that I think we need to hear and listen to today. And that is we are servants and stewards. 
not masters and owners. We are servants and we are stewards, not masters and owners. That's exactly what Paul says. We are servants of Christ. We are servants of the Messiah. We are servants of the Messiah. We serve the one whom God sent into this world to rescue us and to set all creation right. We serve the one who is the centerpiece of God's plan to restore us to a right relationship with the Father. We serve Jesus. We are his servants. And we are stewards. Paul says we're stewards of the mysteries of God. Mystery, especially in the New Testament, is like something that used to be hidden but now has gone public. It's an open secret. People ought to, ought to know about the mystery of God that's been declared, and that is that God has come in the flesh. God has come to work in this world. God the Father has sent his only Son that whoever would believe in him would not perish. Everyone who believes in who Jesus is and what he has done would have life. They'd be changed from the inside out and enter into a new kind of relationship with God. Paul says we steward that. If you think in terms of a a, a relay race, you can imagine someone running their leg and they're holding onto a baton and the goal when they're done with that is to put it in the hand of the next person who's going to run. And Paul says, that's what we are. We're a steward of this leg of the race and we're going to put it in your hands. We're going to put it in someone else's hand, but we want to run faithfully. The requirement for both servants and stewards, that's what we are. The requirement is that we be found faithful, that we do what we're told to do. The requirement is not that we get a lot of attention while doing it. The requirement isn't that we become as clever as we can in doing it. The requirement isn't that we would set our own agenda. The requirement is not that we say, God, you got us this far and thank you, but we'll take it from here. We know what to do now. No, no, no. We are servants. We ask questions like this, or we should. Am I doing the will of my master, Jesus Christ? Because I'm his servant. Am, Am I doing what he wants? Am I praying like this, your will be done, your kingdom, your rule come to this earth like it is in heaven? Do I see the assignments that I have, the the callings in my life? Do I see those? Like these are from the Lord given to me, and I want to be faithful in these assignments. Do I use all my energies to accomplish his will? Is that who I am at the core of my being? I need a reminder. Curtis, you're not an owner. You're not a master. You're a servant. You're a steward. We all are. There's another reminder because we could say, well, Paul, you you say it matters that we be found faithful, but who judges faithfulness? Who judges whether we are faithful? And for that, Paul begins to remind them of what matters most. Look at verse 3. I think we've got to pay attention closely to these words. He says, with me, it is a very small thing that I be judged by you or by any human court. In fact, I don't even judge myself. I'm not aware of anything against me. That doesn't mean I'm justified. That doesn't mean I'm acquitted. It's the Lord. It's the Lord who judges. It's the Lord who judges me. Therefore, don't pronounce judgment before the time, before the Lord comes, who will bring to light now things that are even hidden in darkness and will disclose the purposes that are going on in our heart. Then, and only then, each one will receive his commendation or his praise from God. 
you know, this is a reminder to us, and we need to hear it, that what matters most is God's estimation. What matters most is God's estimation. You know, we have to know this. If you have any sort of emotional awareness at all, that you're constantly being evaluated. It's hard, it's hard to even go much without recognizing people are evaluating your actions, scrutinizing your attitude. So how do we handle that? It'd be easy to get paralyzed by trying to please people because we know they're always watching us. To try to make sure everybody's happy and has a, a favorable opinion of me. To try to manage that so carefully, caref- carefully that I, I live in fear. I replay conversations where I go, oh, did I say something dumb that everybody's going to think I'm, I'm, I don't know what I'm talking about? And you, you've rehashed that and rehashed that because you're just deathly afraid of what, what do other people think? Does their estimation matter to you? Because when that happens, people become really big and God, consequently, in your life becomes pretty small. But what Paul says, although, of course, we're going to take into account what others say, we are not judged by others. That's what he's saying. It's a very small thing to me that I would be judged by you. Maybe you want to take that and run with it and say, see, I found my Bible verse. No one is ever allowed to judge me. Don't judge me. I got my verse. Paul said he wouldn't be judged by anybody. I'm not going to be judged by you. And I think we could easily misunderstand what Paul is driving at the bigger point. So this, this is the same Paul. I mean, we have to bring in all the teachings of Paul. This is the same one who said we ought to, we ought to consider others more important than ourselves. This is the same Paul who would say, I work hard to, to have a clear conscience before God and before others. So Paul did care what other people thought. He did care about his reputation, how he was influencing others. But what he realized at the end of the day is their estimation of him was not the ultimate one. Again, it takes another turn. You see, in our culture, we love that we can always play the don't judge me card. We love we can whip that out and say, you're saying something critical to me, I don't like it, don't judge me. We like to say things like, you know, I just follow my heart. I look inside and I find what's true, my own truth, as I like to think of it. I find this need to really be me. I don't need to listen to anyone else. I just believe in myself. But when I think about that very long, I recognize people have done a lot of scary stuff because they just followed their heart and weren't willing to listen to anybody's estimation or opinion or anything critical about them. You know what Paul says? He says, I don't just follow my heart. I don't even trust my own conscience on all this. That somehow that means I'm okay because my my conscience feels all right about it. He says, I don't know that there's anything against me, but that doesn't justify him because Paul knows what we all should know is that, that our hearts can be pretty deceptive. I can get very angry and in the moment feel totally justified at my anger and three days later recognize I didn't have all the facts. I was such an idiot. I never should have handled it that way. But in the moment, oh, I felt like I'm entitled to that. I didn't see my greed. I didn't see my anger. I didn't see my selfishness. See, our hearts are not the final authority. Others are not the final authority. The only one that can carry the weight of being the final authority is the one who knows everything about everything and about everyone. And that's only God. 
Only God knows our motives. And only God has the vantage point of eternity. God takes everything into account. God judges at the end. And it's really his estimation that matters the most. We want to hear from him. Well done. Well done, good and faithful servant. Where do things need to change? Where am I living for your approval? And it actually diminishes how much I want to please God. These words, these reminders, we need to remember what matters the most is God's estimation. So that means if God rules the world, if God is the judge of everything, if God is the one that ultimately will give praise and honor, then I ought to take stock of my life and see, am I using what I have for his glory? And am I being faithful with what he has given me? I need to take stock of what he has given me and how I think about it. Paul begins to lay on some sarcasm and even talks in some irony here. I think the call out, because the Corinthians in, in their own way seem to be like flexing as how important they are, how proud of themselves, how, how they have arrived. Listen to how Paul talks in verse 6. Paul's going to call him on it. He says, I've applied all these things. All of what I'm talking to you, he says, I've applied to myself and to Apollos for your benefit, brothers. You need to learn by us not to go beyond what is written, that none of you may be puffed up. Paul's talking pretty frankly here, puffed up in favor of one against the other. Verse 7, this would be a great verse to memorize. For who sees anything different in you? What do you have that you did not receive? And if then you have received it, why do you boast as if you did not receive it? Paul says, oh, already you've arrived. Already you have all you want. Already you've become rich. You didn't even need us. Without us, you have become kings. I wish you were kings. We'd just share the rule with you. You hear Paul talking sarcastically, saying, you think you've arrived, but remember, remember, he would tell them, he would tell us, anything you have is a gift from God. What do you have that you did not receive? Anything you do have is a gift from God. This is so different than what the culture in Corinth would say. This is so different than what our culture would say as well. Your status, your order in society in Corinth would would be because you had been able to identify with someone who talked big, who had like intelligent sounding conversation, who gained a big following, someone who is trending, someone who is important. That's who you would want to name drop, identify with them. Look at me because I'm with them. Paul says, who do you think you are anyway? Don't boast. Verse 8 lets us know they, they were acting like they had had it all, like they were rich, like they had arrived. If I use this saying that you might have heard before, it's, Paul could say it's, it's like you're, you were born on third base and you think you've hit a triple. You're so proud of yourself. But what do you have that, that you did not receive? Is there anything special about you? And he says in verse 7, why are we boasting? Can we do something? We don't do it often in our services, but can we just kind of slow down and take a moment? I want you to take inventory. I want you to participate, kind of an active part. 
I want you to look at all the advantages and privileges, the gifts you've been given in your life. So you may immediately go, well, I'd like to tell you about the adversity, the struggles, and the setbacks. And I go, there's a time for that. This is not that time particular. Think about all the privileges and the gifts, the advantages, the benefits you've been given. Who gave you those? Can we walk through some things? Do you have or did you have a father, a mother that loves you? Did you have a sibling? Do you have a sibling that you can call right now, text right now? Did you have a grandparent, an aunt, an uncle that really, really believes in you, loves you, no matter what, loves you, always is glad to listen? Did you have a teacher? Did you have a coach? Do you remember their name? Do you remember how they care? Even when you were an idiot in class and they loved you and they were with you, like they, they believed you would, you would do something. They invested their time. They went the extra mile. Is there someone, is there a friend that you could think of? Is there, is there a pastor? Was there a neighbor, a neighbor who did not have to do all that they've done for you, but has, they've done it. What do you have that you've earned here? Were there schools, were there churches, were there environments? You have an education. Where did you get that? What had to fall in line for you to have that? Who wrote your genetic code? So you have skills and you have a personality and strengths to that personality. You have a certain temperament. You have gifts and abilities that you don't know why you're just a little bit better than others. It's just what, the way it is. Who gave you the opportunities? Who front-loaded trust for you? They didn't have to believe in you, but they did. Can we, can we slow down? Because I'm, I'm sure there are many things you have accomplished. I'm sure you could fill a page of all the things that you've done. But I, I want us to make sure, before we put ourselves on an island and say, look at everything I did by myself, I want to make sure. Somewhere along the line, there are a lot of people giving you things. What do you have that you did not receive? You see, we have a God that has been so gracious to us. Any gift you have is from God. Paul presses further because the thinking of the church in Corinth had gotten so off track that as Paul leans in, it seems like even the emotion in his writing shows. He's telling him, your thinking has gotten off track. You are backward in your thinking. Verse 9, this is what he says. For I think that God has exhibited us apostles. So the first ones who were sent by Jesus. I think he's put us at the last of the line. The apostles, we're, we're like men sentenced to death. We become a spectacle, and spectacle were the things like that happened in the Colosseums where people got eaten by lions. That's the spectacle. 
We're a spectacle to the world, to angels and to men. We're fools. We're fools for Christ's sake. Oh, but you, oh, you're the wise ones in Christ. Oh, we're weak, but you, oh, you're strong. You're held in honor. Us, we're we're just held in disrepute. To the present hour, we hunger, we thirst. We're poorly dressed, we're buffeted, we're beat up, we're homeless. We labor working with our own hands. We get reviled, and when we do that, we bless. We get persecuted, when that happens, we endure. We get slandered, and when that happens, we, we entreat. We become and are still like, you read the words there, the scum of the world, the refuse of all things. I think another reminder that Paul is giving is the reminder that the way of Jesus is the way of the cross. To follow Jesus is the way of the cross. If we're walking on the same path that he's walking, we are walking in the path of the cross. It seems like they had bought into some version of the prosperity gospel, which is heretical. It's not really a gospel at all because it promises certain things that are are so contrary to the way of Jesus. What it seems like they had bought into is if we have it all and we're pretty comfortable right now and we're held in honor, it's a sign that God's all about us. And when you look at Paul, he has none of that, so he must be not doing the right things while we're doing the right things here. What wrong thing did he do to have all this? We are doing the right things. And Paul says, you have flipped things around. If you follow Jesus to only insulate you from every hard thing imaginable, then you don't really understand the way of Jesus. We're not in the Garden of Eden where everything's perfect. We're not yet at the new heavens and new earth where everything will be restored. We are in a world of sin where it's broken and lost and ruined and alienated and the world is groaning. That's what scripture says. So when you experience some of this world and life gets painful and hard, I wonder what questions you ask. When you identify with Jesus and it costs you something, you lose things because you've identified with Jesus. You get reviled or slandered or persecuted because you identify with him. How do you handle that? When you start dealing with trouble and pain and difficulty, do you think somehow you've violated a law of the universe and you're suffering because of karma? It just came back around and that's just the way it all works. Do you think you've done something wrong in your spiritual life because you have to deal with pain? You have to deal with chronic pain. Do you feel like somehow you got all this wrong because you're being persecuted for following Jesus? Because you feel lonely, because your kids and your grandkids haven't done right exactly. Do you feel like, yeah, see, something must not be right with me and God. Because if I were, if I were doing things right, then he would make all this go well in my world. Because your marriage is rough, maybe because it's really rough, or, or because you've gotten cancer, because you've been betrayed, because you've been taken advantage of. Do you think immediately, do you connect these thoughts? Well, I guess I'm doing something wrong. Is that the explanation for all the bad stuff? You just don't rate high on the spiritual list? Paul says, your thinking, Corinthians, has been flipped. You need reorient your thinking. Yeah, frankly, you may be dealing with the consequences of sin in your life. That may be true. But remember the apostles, you know, the ones that laid the foundation for all of Christianity. Remember, almost all of those were martyred because they followed Jesus. And if that's not enough, remember the one who went to the cross. Remember Jesus. Remember Jesus, the one that said, take up your cross. If you're following me, you're going to take up your cross and deny yourself. 
As a matter of fact, when I read Paul's description of himself and, and like his team of people, it reminds me of a certain individual who did go to the cross. Let, let me read you Paul's description again of his kind of position in this world. He says, I'm like a man sentenced to death. I'm a spectacle to the world. I'm considered a fool. I'm considered weak. You saved others, you can't save yourself. I'm held in disrepute. I hunger, I thirst. I'm poorly dressed, I'm beat up, I'm homeless. No place to lay my head. I'm reviled, I'm persecuted. I'm slandered. I'm considered like the scum of the world, the refuse of all things. I don't know that Paul could have given a better description of how the world estimated Jesus on the cross. You see, we've just read the biography of Jesus, the humiliation that he endured to show his love for us, to make the way of salvation possible. So when he says, follow me, he's not going to take us to a place he hasn't already been. He went to the cross. He was reviled. He was persecuted. He did endure all those things against himself, such hostility against himself. Consider him. Look at him. Keep your eyes focused on him because following him, you may endure some hardship. But he is walking with you the way of Jesus is the way of the cross. The writing for Paul gets pretty emotional and personal. He says in verse 14, I, I don't write these things to make you ashamed. To, but I am writing to admonish you as my beloved children. You have countless guides in Christ, but you don't have many fathers. And I became your father in Christ Jesus through the gospel. So I urge you then, I urge you, be imitators of me. That's why I sent you, Timothy, my beloved and faithful child in the Lord, to remind you of my ways in Christ as I teach them everywhere in every church. He wants to make sure they understand his tone, but he has another reminder for them, and that is that God uses spiritual parents to really form our faith. I think we need to be reminded of that as well today. God uses spiritual parents to form our faith. I think in Paul's day, it almost had to work like that because Paul couldn't open 66 books of the Bible and say, hey, just read the Bible because some of those books weren't even written yet, right? Some of them were still being written at the time that he writes this letter to Corinth. So how are the Corinthians supposed to live and believe? How are they supposed to treat each other? How are they supposed to relate to God? So Paul would say, you saw me do it. Paul would be the first. He would say he's the chief of sinners. So of course he doesn't think he's perfect, but, but you saw me do it. And I'm going to send you Timothy because here's another one who is serving the Lord. Watch him do it. Watch how he treats others. Watch how he prays. Watch how he relates to the Father. Watch what he believes in. Watch the core of who he is. God uses people like that to really form our faith. Paul says, you have lots of guides, so you've got lots of babysitters that are going to come in and out of your life, but you, you don't have many spiritual parents. And I put in the time, and I loved you, and I care for you deeply. Can I ask you, when you hear like spiritual parents, someone instrumental to your faith in Jesus, who do you think of? Maybe you think of biological parents, I don't know, but maybe for many of you, you don't. You think of a friend, you think of a campus leader, you think of a, a youth pastor. You think of, of 
a Bible study leader, a community group leader. Maybe you think of someone that nobody would ever expect that they were the ones that really shaped my faith, but they did. They were the ones that walked with me as I botched my Christian life. They were the ones there to help me pick up the pieces. They were there to pray for me. They were there to hear me confess my sin. And sometimes they were here, there to hear me complain and to redirect my complaints. Was there someone like that? If they're still alive and you can get in contact with them, that might be a great thing to do this week and just say, you, you may not even know what a difference you made in my life. But maybe another question that lingers with this is, who are you a spiritual parent to? My guess is the person who is a spiritual parent to you did not feel overly qualified to do it. They just knew they loved you. And as far as they had gone, they wanted to bring other people with them. Could you do that for someone else? I believe you could. I believe God would be pleased to have you do that. Passage, passages like this don't have a neat, tidy ending. Like he doesn't blow him kisses at the end. It actually gets stern. But that's because spiritual fathers, fathers in general, swerve into hard conversations if they need to. Like, you mess with my kids, I get defensive pretty quickly. Because there's some sense of my responsibility before the Lord. If I need to have a conversation, I, I don't need to run from that. I'm so glad to have a dad that kind of reset my own life when I'm 13-year-old and know everything, of course. We need someone to come in and go, let me correct a few things. And Paul does that. He says in verse 18, you know, there's some there that are arrogant. They don't think I'm coming to you, but I will come soon if the Lord wills. And I will find out not the talk of these arrogant people, but of their power. For the kingdom of God does not consist in talk, but it consists in power. So what do I need to do? Paul says, do I need to come as a stern disciplinarian, bring in a rod? Can we have a gentle heart-to-heart? What do, I, what do I need to do? Paul doesn't weasel out of the tough conversation, but in the middle of it, he drops the line, doesn't he? The kingdom of God consists not in talk, but in power. And so when I kind of put together, okay, what do I hope for today? What I hope is that God's word would be so powerfully speaking to you that it would change, it would change, it would change me. That God's power would be shown here at our church. It would be shown by your life changing and your life changing that you would not be the same person that you once were. That you would love God more, that you would love your neighbor more. That you would change in ways that you never thought possible and the only explanation could be not just because you tried really hard, but God did for you what you could not do for yourself. That marriages might be healed and restored. That people would sacrifice in ways that they have never sacrificed before. That people would be welcoming. That there would be a real, real change in where normally you'd be introverted, you would only care about yourself, you go out of your way to welcome other people into what God is doing, that people would find room to have hard conversations, even when it would be much easier to just kind of turn the other, other way and paper over anything. I didn't see anything, but they would lean into that, and that we would be a community that would show love, but we would show God's truth as well. We would inconvenience ourselves. We would forgo our rights so that we could serve others. You see, when all that happens, when all that happens, 
It's not just going to be about a lot of talk that happens at Ogletown. But it's going to be about God's power that just sat down right in the middle of Newark, Delaware. And we became a community that was shaped by the Holy Spirit of God and didn't look like the world, but looked more and more like Jesus because he's our master. We're servants and we're stewards of his anyway. I believe that's what Paul hoped for in Corinth. I know that's what I'm praying for here in Newark, Delaware. Let me pray. Oh, Lord, we need to hear these words because we want your power to change us. The stubborn sin that has gripped us, we want to be free from it. The selfishness that could easily be all what we're about, we want that to change. We want to see your power to change lives, change our own lives. And so we ask for you to come and show your strength that would justify human explanation. I thank you for years ago when this letter was written to a church in Greece and our ears are wide open, Lord. We open our service saying, here's my heart, take and seal it. And now again, Lord, we offer our hearts to you. And we say, speak. And we pray we wouldn't just hear these words, but we would be changed by them. We ask it in Christ's name, for his sake. Amen.